If you like the work that we produce on this show, support the show and get access to extra content and more at patreon.com backslash Fred Opie show. Live from our studio in Babson Park, Massachusetts, it's the Fred Opie Show, where we unpack history to positively impact the future. I am Fred Opie, your host. Thanks for joining us live or listening to the podcast. Today is another part in our series on African Americans in lacrosse, and it's appropriate because it's Black History Month. If you've been listening to this show for any time, you may have discerned that we are all about the history of the game and educating our listeners with the oral histories of our guests. Today, I put on my historian's hat and unpack some of the greats in the game that I would say most folks don't know about. Let's start with the contribution of African-American women, then turn to an excerpt of a live presentation I did on African-American men, such as Jim Brown and others, and conclude the show with an excerpt of a segment in which I was asked about the presence of African-Americans in lacrosse since I played at Syracuse University in the 1980s. First up is Tina Sloan Green. Tina Sloan Green was raised in the Eastwick section of Philadelphia and attended the prestigious Philadelphia High School for Girls, where she had been an outstanding field hockey player. She would go on to earn All-American honors at Westchester University, where she played field hockey and started playing lacrosse for the first time. In the 1960s, she had been one of only a handful of black women playing the sport. Sloan Green remembers, for me, to play against somebody black was rare. I remember, I remember Eloise Coker. She went to Temple. She was a year ahead of me. Kitty Cox played for Queens College in New York. I remember hearing about her, too. Sloan Green would go on to play on four U.S. women's national lacrosse teams. She coached basketball and cheerleading at Lincoln University and HBCU outside of Philadelphia in the early 1970s. She also organized a lacrosse program there during her tenure. Sloan Green would leave Lincoln to serve as the head coach of Temple University's field hockey and lacrosse teams. When Sloan Green arrived on campus, lacrosse and field hockey had been club teams. She recalls, I had to go around to the sororities and beg girls to come out and play. The program started to turn around after I got a few scholarships. With lots of hard work, Sloan Green built a winning tradition in both sports at Temple. When I go into something, she explained, I want to be the best. I try to produce excellence. Sloan Green led lacrosse teams at Temple to three national championships, 11 straight Final Four appearances, and from 1983 to 1985, her team had a record-setting 29-game winning streak. In 18 seasons, she accumulated a record of 207 wins, 62 losses, and 4 ties, with a .758 career winning percentage. She is a National Lacrosse Hall of Famer. After her coaching career, Sloan Green co-founded the Black and Sports Foundation in 1992. The organization's mission is to provide healthy alternatives for at-risk women and children and support for the inclusion and rights of women of color in all aspects of sports, from the field to the boardroom. Allison Williams Bruno, a native of Malvern, Pennsylvania, Allison Williams Bruno played for Green at Temple on its 1984 national championship team. 
Bruno began coaching lacrosse at Philadelphia University, leading her team to a winning record each year. Bruno then became head lacrosse and field hockey coach at Towson State University, where she led the lacrosse team to two consecutive undefeated seasons and two East Coast Conference championships. Williams would go on to serve as head lacrosse coach at Georgetown University, where she compiled a three-season record of 28 wins and seven losses. Now UNC head coach Jenny Levy got her start working as an assistant coach under Bruno at Georgetown. Sherry Greer-Brown, a native of Burn Mawr, Pennsylvania, Sherry Greer-Brown grew up as a multi-sport athlete playing field hockey, basketball, and lacrosse. As a player at the University of Virginia, UVA, she put in four Final Fours, won two national championships, and earned first-team All-American honors in the 1990s. She earned National Defensive Player of the Year and led the nation in scoring. Her college coach, Hall of Famer Jane Miller, says, Greer Brown was one of the hardest workers on the team. She practiced as hard as she played. She never took a minute off. She made her teammates better because of her work ethic and her own play. Greer Brown played on four U.S. national teams. She's a member of the National Lacrosse Hall of Fame. UVA retired her number 18 jersey. Write me to speak, teach, coach, and consult at fdopie at gmail.com. That's fdopie at gmail.com. The books start with your gift, which is my lacrosse memoir. I think the best chapter in the book is the last one in which I talk about how to handle your finances. Every dumb thing I've ever done, I'm open about it because I don't want you making the same stupid mistakes that I did. Now, on to Men in the Game, a history of African-American men and their contributions to the game of lacrosse. As with the women, I'm sure there'll be some names that you've never heard about before. So I decided to take you through a bit of the history of the African-American experience in lacrosse. Certainly the history of lacrosse goes way beyond uh, African-Americans, and we certainly need to pay homage to that too. Native Americans who created this sport and made it uh, all of our sports. So let's let's start off with a uh, a little bit of Jim Brown. Uh, played at my alma mater, Syracuse University. I had an opportunity to meet uh, Jim Brown in let me see that would have been in 1983, spring of 1983. He was inducted to the Lacrosse Hall of Fame, and he asked for that induction to happen at, at his high school in Long Island, Manhattan, um, uh, Manhattan High School in Long Island. And Manhattan has had this uh, program called the Lacrosse Day Champions, where the Division Three and Division One team would play at Manhattan. Manhattan would play against their arch rivals, uh, Elmont High School. So it was the halftime of that game when I saw him. And what was interesting is that, first of all, that Jim Brown played for my coach, Hall of Famer Roy Simmons Jr. So they were college players together, teammates, along with Orrin Lyons, who is one of the most important teams in the uh, Iroquois Nation. I had an opportunity to meet Jim. Now, in 1983, for those that may not remember, the running back for the Pittsburgh Steelers, Franco Harris, was about to pass Jim Brown's rushing record. And Jim decided to come out of retirement 
to go back and play. Now, you, many of you guys may not know this, but this is the case in 1983. So when I met him, he was at that point where he was training to go back and play. And I remember going into the, the elevator at the hotel, and Coach Simmons said, this is Big Jim. That's, that's Coach Chris Carlson, Big Jim to this day. And just kind of looking up at this guy and just these shoulders and this... And, and imagining me as a defenseman trying to cover this guy. I mean, that, it was incredible that Jim not only was a great athlete, but he came from Manhasset. Manhasset is where Bill Bitter and uh, a lot of the Bitters, you know, all the, uh, that whole family comes from there. So you're talking about some serious lacrosse tradition. So he's not just a big guy with a stick, even though you know, you'll see him playing with the old wooden stick, but this is a guy who was a very talented lacrosse player. The other thing to know about Jim Brown and, and his own career is that you can learn a lot more about him through the work of Spike Lee. Spike Lee has actually done a documentary that looks at Jim Brown uh, as a lacrosse player, as a movie star, and uh, as a football player. So it's a, it's a great piece. But we have Jim Brown playing in the 50s at Syracuse, and then we have Mike Bigby from Princeton, played at Princeton, Hempstead High School. Hempstead High School is on the island. Hempstead High School is going to come back up. Dean Rounds, Brown University, also from Hempstead High School. Tina Sloan Green, uh, Hall of Fame coach at Temple. Kyle, I'm sure you recognize Kyle. What number is your dad? You not in this one? Well, let's lie and act like he is. All right. So <laughs> <laughs> Kyle's dad is in there doing do his thing. A lot of the history that of, of Morgan State nobody knew about until Kyle and uh, T. and coach wrote the book The Ten Bears. Film came out on it. But this is a tremendous way to learn. What's interesting about this is that these guys are playing in Baltimore at the height of the Black Power movement. You got to think about the symbolism of these guys coming out on the field and playing against the University of Maryland, some of these predominantly white schools, universities uh, at that particular time. It's the height of the Black Power movement. So it's very symbolic that they were able to do this and what it meant for, for many people. And this is a history that we, we certainly shouldn't forget. Super 7, Principles to Grow, Win with People, and Be More Creative. It's a book that will help you managing your schedule, communication, dealing with criticism, learning how to give criticism, learning how to organize yourself. That's what's in that book. I'm excited for that bad boy to drop, and it's going to be happening very soon as an audio book, a Kindle, and a hard copy. That'll be coming out soon. We'll have some pre-sales set up in the weeks to come. And this is before the days of ESPN, where you can see lacrosse on every weekend. I mean, your generation right here is spoiled as far as being able to watch lacrosse. The only time I saw lacrosse growing up, and I'm from Westchester County in New York, would be on the occasional poster when they were getting ready for a world team game. And this guy here on the right is a guy named Ed Howard. Ed Howard played at Hobart. Ed was one of the first black guys I saw play lacrosse. This poster was hanging up on my coach's door in my hometown. And I began to try to find a little bit more about Ed. He went to Hobart as a basketball player. Never played lacrosse in his life. The basketball player is from Buffalo, New York. He became disenchanted as a point guard playing for the basketball team. Quit the basketball team. And at that time, who's the assistant coach? Dave Yurk. They made a living off of people like Ed Howard. They would just look across the campus for the best athletes. And they would recruit them and turn them into lacrosse players. Ed never played until he got to Hobart, 
started playing uh, as a freshman in, in January of his freshman year. By his sophomore year, he's, he's contributing to the team, and he's a All-American, first-team All-American, I believe his junior and senior year. I had an opportunity to interview him for a series I did on my blog on, on Black History Month. I've been talking about when he went back to Buffalo, and he's sitting there playing catch on the wall. And the folks in his neighborhood are looking at this guy like, what is he doing? Is he going crabbing? Is he going fishing? What, what is he doing with this stick? And he just worked on the stick, worked on the stick, worked on the stick to the point where he was just as good as any of the players. He's a terrific athlete that grew to love our game. So this is me a freshman year and looking around the country for other players who I could identify with. And one of them was Sid Abernathy. Sid Abernathy was the second first-team All-American uh, in lacrosse division one level after Jim Brown. So you got Jim Brown, Sid Abernathy, and then Kyle, third one, to make first-team All-American at the division one level. I mean, these are people who that I grew up and I, and I knew about because I grew up right across the river from West Point Military Academy. And when Sid is a senior, he plays against West Point in a uh, in a quarterfinal game, and I got a chance to watch him. And I, I was a high school attackman when I first started out, and then I, I moved to defense when I was in college. And talk about his experience uh, growing up. Uh, he went to Annapolis High School right across the street from the Naval Academy. Another guy that a lot of people don't know, Curtis Roundtree, who was a high school player at a very elite private school, Baltimore, uh, St. Paul in Baltimore, and went on to play at the University of Maryland. Another guy that I saw, an All-American at the University of Maryland, Ricky Soule. Ricky was an attackman at Cobble Skill. He transferred to Washington College. They moved him to midfield there, had an outstanding career, two-time All-American at Washington College. Had an opportunity to interview Ricky about his experience growing up in uh, upstate New York in the Binghamton area, Vestal area, and uh, how he got turned on to the game of lacrosse. We all know everybody. So if you're a great guy, everybody knows it. If you're a jerk, everybody knows it. <laughs> That's one thing about our game. This is Aaron Jones. Aaron played at Cornell, All-American defense. He played on that great Cornell team in 1987 that went to the finals with Tim Goldstein and a bunch of other great players. Lost to Hopkins down at Rutgers. Aaron and I met at a, a party at Cornell. I had a Syracuse across a shirt on, and he had a Cornell across t-shirt. It was a it was a black sorority party. They identified each other real quick because a lot of folks wearing lacrosse t-shirts at that party. <laughs> we, found, we found each other real quick, and the first thing he said is, "Oh, you play lacrosse, Syracuse?" And yeah, he said, "We gonna kick your hey." That's the first thing, first first thing I ever heard. Darren Jones. Darren's high school teammate, Dan Williams. Dan Williams went on to be an All-American at West Point. So this is Danny at a game at Mikey Stadium, the stadium that I grew up watching lacrosse at. Remember the picture I showed you with the, the player from Brown and Princeton, 1967? That's the exact same high school. Let's conclude the show with the excerpt of me being asked about the presence of African Americans in lacrosse since I played at Syracuse University in the 1980s. I've heard people say recently that these days still, Young African-American lacrosse players still don't have those LeBron James, Michael Jordan type of guys to look up to when they're looking at the game of, of lacrosse. Do you think that's true anymore? I don't think so. I, um, I think they're out there. I mean, certainly, I mean, there's a whole lot more cats out there playing the games than when I played. I, I went to uh, a, a tournament, called, I think it was called the War at the Shore out in New Jersey, and I went to coach a, an FCA um, team. And I was shocked because, you know, as a graduate student and a faculty member, I kind of was away from the game for a long while as I went, as I went through graduate school and began my early career as a professor. 
And I was shocked to get to this field and not only see a ton of African-American players, but referees. I mean, it was, it was kind of like, you know, this is wild. So I think, I think the role models are out there. The issue is, do the majority of African-Americans who still tend to live in urban areas see these people? And that's the issue. If you, if you live out in the suburbs, you know, in the Camillus's and, you know, some of the places, uh, you know, Fayetteville, Manius and Jamesville, DeWitt, if you live out in the suburbs, you're going to see that. But if, if you don't live in the city or, or if, you, if you don't have people like that around inner city areas, a lot of those kids are not going to see that. So I think the people are there. The issue is since, since the demise of, uh, of de facto Jim Crow and Jim Crow, black folks can live wherever they want, and lacrosse is, tends to happen in affluent areas. And unless you have money to live in those affluent areas, you're not going to see those role models. Was there ever any backlash to your success at Syracuse or just when you were playing the game growing up or any sort of racial tension brought about by spectators or, or people you knew around you? I'll never forget, I think it might have been my first year on the team because I transferred from, from Herkimer Community College to Syracuse like quite a few Herkimer players have over the years. Spring break, right at the time we're at right now, and at that time Syracuse would always travel down to Baltimore and we'd stay in the Hunt Valley Marriott. I can remember just like yesterday. And our first game was against, if I remember correctly, it was North Carolina. So we got off the bus. We played at Loyola College against Carolina, a neutral site. And, you know, lacrosse in Baltimore is just, you know, it's the game. I mean, I know it's, it's just so big down there. And all these white fans were at the field. Here it is, Syracuse gets off the field. And as you know, we're not real loved in the, in, down there anyhow <laughs> as a program. So to get off the bus with the Syracuse Orange on our away jerseys. And then I think people just, they saw me, and there was another guy on the team, another African-American from New Jersey named Matt Holman. And I don't know what Matt said about this, but I just remember people kind of looking at me like, why is he here? And it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a hostility. It was more like a, a kind of a quizzitive look like, wow, this is different. <laughs> so there were situations like that. Now, did I ever have any, you know, people call me the N-word and things like that? Not, not that I remember, but, you know, at that time, you know, I tell people I played two years at Syracuse in 84 and 85, and our record was something like 30-3. and three. We lost three games, two in a national championship against Hopkins, and then one the first game of the season against Hopkins my senior year. So most games, we were just we were kicking people's trash. So people weren't going to talk trash to me because we were winning. And if they did, I'd just point at the scoreboard and just keep walking. So it really wasn't that much of an issue with me. Well, now kind of looking towards the future, how much more room is there for the game to grow in the African-American community? And how can the problem of lacrosse just requiring a ton of commitment and being less accessible – in poor communities, how can that be worked around? Two areas that I think the game um, really needs to grow in, and I'd like to see it growing and make inroads, are the African American community and as well as the Latino or Hispanic community. Those are the two, because those are the populations in urban areas and underserved, and, and largely impoverished areas of, of of the United States that uh, I'd like to see that inroad because there's just so many opportunities. Now, the challenge to that is lacrosse increasingly has become a what I would call and others would call a pay-to-play game. That is, you're not going to get seen by the John Descos of the world, of the um, uh, Coach um, uh, Petromalo at Hopkins and some of the other premier 
programs in the country, unless you're on one of these elite travel teams that could cost you up to three or four thousand dollars to play on a team, and this is just for the summertime to play on a team that plays in these again elite tournaments. So you got to have the money to be on that team, and then you have to have the money to travel from tournament to tournament where these coaches show up to play. That's it for this edition of the Fred Opie Show. Thank you for joining us. Check out the show archive at fredopiespeaks.com, as well as our books and other content. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out our show notes where you'll find a way to subscribe to our podcast, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. You'll find links to books discussed on the show, links to our YouTube channel where you can watch the show, If you want to know more about what I'm doing, go to fredopi.com, which is my website. You can see information on the books I've published. There are two blogs that I host there, both a food and an athlete's blog, and there's both a food and an athlete's podcast. The whole archive to both those two podcasts are there. At the bottom of the podcast page, I have links to interviews that I have listened to on other people's podcasts that I would recommend to you. 